Uh, we are going to be beginning our new series this year, uh, which is through the Gospel of Luke. And the New Testament is this tiny library of documents. It's made up of 27 short books and letters. Uh, and in terms of word count, this little collection is dominated by a sweeping two-part historical epic that tells the story of Jesus and the birth of his church. And while they don't appear together, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written as a set. And their author, the most prolific writer of the New Testament, was not Paul. It wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but it was a North African physician by the name of Lucius of Cyrene. You may know him better by his nickname, Luke. Luke was this Jewish believer who served alongside Paul and Barnabas as one of the founding elders of the church at Antioch. Antioch was Christianity's first mixed congregation, uh, Jewish and Gentile background believers. In addition to kind of maintaining his medical practice and being one of the kind of first historians of the Christian movement, he was a missionary alongside of Paul, who did all these missionary adventures across the Mediterranean world. And Luke had a patron. He had someone that was funding the writing of his works, who had commissioned and bankrolled these two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And the only thing we know about his patron is that he had the Greek name Theophilus, which means lover of God. And apparently this man was so passionate about Jesus and what he did that he funded this so that people, the church, might know more about Jesus and that they might be built up and blessed and that more and more people might find life in his name. So both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are ostensibly addressed to Theophilus, but they are for all of us. And the gospel begins this way, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke's gospel is the third gospel written. It's written after Mark. It's written after Matthew. And Luke has clearly read both kind of pre-existing biographies of Jesus. And he, he begins to tell his own account. It's not to, to correct errors in the earlier works. He wants to add details. And he wants to tell Christ's story fresh for a new audience and context. And if you've read either Mark or Matthew, you, can, you realize they're very different books. The Gospel of Mark, it reads like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Jesus bursts onto the scene and it's, everything's immediate. It's all frenetic action. It's all these kind of confounding disclosures. And, and Mark really wants the narrative to suck the reader in. To get, they get drawn in, they get confronted, and they're forced to figure out how they would respond to Jesus. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, it takes an entirely different approach. It presents Jesus as the culmination of Israel's hope and story. It provides all these substantial pieces of evidence that this Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And Luke is writing to a different people. He's writing to us. He's writing to those Gentiles, those of us who grew up outside of that story, to let us know that this is significant for us as well. And we're not going to move quickly through this book. We're going to spend a good time, good part of the next year here. Um, but warning, we won't study every word. We will skip around a little bit. We might take some breaks. For example, we're going to skip over the Christmas bits uh, and much of Luke's kind of preliminary stage setting and get directly to adult Jesus. But I also want to say, be warned, uh, we may actually cover some of the passages that you want us to gloss over, uh, like today's genealogy. Uh, so thank you, Beth. So buckle in and let's let Jesus teach us. Let's let Luke teach us through the way that he reveals Jesus to us. So I don't know what your quiet times looked like, your kind of times of personal devotion with the Lord, but I have kind of a fairly established routine at this point. I begin most of my days at the bar in my kitchen with a very large, piping hot tumbler of coffee and with some Bible reading. And I tend to always read a psalm, uh, a short passage from the gospel, and at least one chapter from somewhere else in the pages of Scripture. And as I sit there in the morning, I usually sit down with a journal. And as I'm reading, if there's anything that kind of jumps out from the text, any word, any phrase, any verse, I just kind of write it down in my journal. I don't process it yet. And then once I've finished my reading, I'll go back and read what I've written, and I'll start to meditate on it. I'll, I'll start to pray about it. I'll start to jot down these little bullet points of conversation between me and God. I'll ask questions. I'll, I'll share thoughts and insights. I'll, I'll launch into prayers. And as I was looking through my little prayer journal, on January 17th, I was reading Psalm 24. And right now I'm reading the Psalms. I'm reading the Gospel of Luke. I'm reading the book of Jeremiah. And as I was reading Psalm 24, the opening verses just started to pulse with life. I could hear the yearning of God's heart. Psalm 24 starts this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. I was hearing God's fervor to reconcile his world back to himself, to reclaim what is his and those who are his. His, his beautiful world has been broken. We know this. We had a young man lose his life blocks from our church last night in a robbery gone wrong. Our world is broken. People whose the sanctity of their lives are being denied and here we hear the heart of God that he wants. He knows his children are wayward, but he yearns to make us whole, to bring us home 
to his heart. Yet to do so, God requires, according to the psalm, a faithful partner, a a sub-creator, a representative of humanity who will ascend his holy hill and join him in his work. Psalm 24 continues this way. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And I read those words and like a pit starts to form in my stomach because I feel like history is replete with frustration on this very point. Who can live up to those qualifications? It seems like when you look at the story of humanity, generation after generation, and God has not found a faithful partner, even among the best of us, who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up their soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. Remember Adam? God's special creation, his first human son, the one he formed with his own hands who he breathed his life into his very nostrils. It wasn't him. He wasn't the faithful partner God was looking for. Adam, even though he walked with God in the cool of the day in a pristine paradise, even though he was perfectly provisioned, he had everything he needed, yet even he succumbs to to selfishness and to ambition. Failing to trust God's goodness, he yielded to the serpent's lies and he participated in the breaking of the world. And humanity was barred from Eden. We were cut off from everlasting life. But even then, God promises, yeah, there will be a faithful human partner who will come and who will join me in my great plan of redemption. There will be a son of Adam who will crush the serpent's head, who will do away with evil once and for all, though the serpent will bruise his heel. That little cryptic statement at the very beginning of the Bible. And so then we keep going and we're like, well, who's going to be this righteous son, this representative that God will use to enact his great salvation. And you keep going. It wasn't Noah, the one who faithfully built an ark. He was revealed to be an angry drunk. It wasn't Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. He lied. He claimed that his wife was his sister and in fear gave her to another man. It wasn't Israel's great warrior king, David. Even though David slew giants, he was a worshiper after God's own heart. He was proven to be a murderer and an adulterer. It wasn't his son Solomon, one of the wealthiest and wisest people to have ever lived. No, Solomon ended his days, you might remember from Ecclesiastes, an idol-worshiping sex addict. 
who put countless of his own people into just crushing involuntary servitude. And Solomon's descendants proved none better. Indeed, it was because of their injustice, their corruption, their greed, that God strips the kingdom away from them and sends them into exile. You should remember that from our our journey through the book of Daniel last year. And you just read history and it's like, not that guy, not that guy, not that guy. No, 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 no. You remember what Paul says in Romans 8? He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Since the breaking of the world, a groaning cosmos has been desperate for God's faithful partners to appear. Any true-born son who could ascend God's holy hill and be used by him to enact his great restoration. Paul goes on to say, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In the pains of childbirth, they've been waiting for someone to be born. A glorious king who might be the instrument of God's salvation. And since no one could be found, since the human heart has proven hopelessly selfish and deceitful, God's grace had to make a way. Psalm 24 ends with this great line. Who is this coming king of glory? The answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's almost as if God is saying, if you want something done, do it yourself. Yep. And he does. Which brings us to Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, we read, and i got to warn you, Luke likes his precision, his details. Medical doctor, amateur historian, he's going to tell us all about names and places and times. But he has his reasons. But Luke chapter 3 begins this way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iaturia and Tractonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Luke is really careful to situate 
our story in its proper historical, cultural, and religious context. He wants us to know that this is actual events with concrete reality. And he just keeps regaling us with names, names of these promising leaders from these different cultures, each a son of Adam with his own strategy and priorities on how he might reshape the world. Luke wants us to know that this is more than a Jewish story. It's a universal story. It's something that will be news for all people. And then after 400 years of divine silence, a prophet appears in the wilderness. And he has a simple message. Get ready. The one we've been waiting for is on his way. Prepare by reversing course. You need to change directions. Humble yourself and be washed clean. It's time for a recommitment, a fresh start, a new beginning. Change that we need. The change we need is right around the corner. And then we skip all the way to Luke 21. Now when all people were baptized, all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Among the responsive crowds comes one anonymous carpenter from a nowhere town of Nazareth. He submits himself to John's baptism. He, he yields himself to God's word spoken through the prophet. He's submerged beneath the waters of that river. Though his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And as he comes out of the Jordan, he begins to quietly pray. And as if in response, the heavens open and a divine voice thunders. And you can almost hear God say, finally. As God declares from his holy throne, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's this incredible confirmation. It's this tender approval, the faithful partner that God in all creation has been just eagerly longing for is on sight. God's true-born Son, yes, even the Lord incarnate, has come to make all things new, to reconcile the earth and its fullness back to God. And you might think I'm reading too much into it, but what comes next? Jesus' genealogy actually reinforces this story. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, 30 years of age. 30 is kind of this threshold year, age in the ancient world. It's this signal that a man is mature and responsible and ready to begin his public career. It goes on, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. Luke knows that because of Mary conceiving while still a virgin, Jesus is not actually biologically related 
to Joseph. But he mentions Jesus' stepfather, and then he dives into the genealogy. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai. And you guys dodged a bullet, I will tell you this. Because I was going to, we have 77 of these to go through. And I was going to just put them up on the screen and have you guys do your best attempt to pronounce all of these names. And I was going to say wrong pronunciations only, just to make it more fun. But, alas, you have to just listen to me butcher names for the next two minutes. So let's take a deep breath. And I know these people are made in the image of God. They are significant folks, but they will not mind if I do not pronounce their names correctly. 26, the son of Maath, or Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanna, Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Eldamah, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, again, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elikim, the son of Melia, the son of Menon, the son of Mathatha, the son of, and now these are some familiar names, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obad, son of Boaz, Son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarag, son of Ruah, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxid, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, Son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. We made it. And before you thank God that it's over and just barrel right past it, we've got to ask, why is this here? Remember, this is the third gospel written And Matthew has already provided us with a recounting of Jesus' ancestry. Why does Luke feel compelled to offer a repeat performance? Well, I think there's kind of three options that easily present themselves. One is that Luke thinks Matthew screwed it up and he has to correct the error. There's some discrepancies between the two genealogies, and the standard secular assumption is that Matthew made some boo-boos, Luke's cleaning up the record. The second option is that Luke thinks he can tell it better, or he's got more to add. The first version of this is Matthew's genealogy is just so boring. It's all in how you tell the story. If you let me do it, it will be riveting. To which I say, Luke, you didn't get there. (laughs) Or, it's you know what? I got more to add. Matthew only got 42 generations. I got 77. That's 35 more. That's not one-upmanship. That's 35-upmanship. It feels petty, but he's like, mic drop. That's option two. 
He can do it better. He's got more to add. Option three is that Luke's recounting contains its own message. And you don't have to do this. I did this for us. If you compare the two genealogies, Luke does adopt it in completely different strategy. Matthew starts at Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, and he works his way up, up to Jesus. Luke, as we've heard, starts at Jesus and works his way back all the way to creation. And if you make some observations on these two genealogies, there's a couple things that jump out as intriguing, as potentially indicative of a, of a deeper message. First, I said there's 77 generations here. Seven is the biblical number of completion. It hints of God's great renewal, that God is bringing about this restoration, this final jubilee. You should remember back to last year's series through the book of Daniel. We read these verses. Seventy-sevens are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy-sevens. And then here we see 77 generations leading to Jesus. That's interesting to me. The fact that he goes all the way back to Adam is interesting to me. It's not just a Jewish story. This is a story for all of us. I even find the apparent contradictions between the two genealogies interesting. There's two major things that are different in these two recountings of Jesus' ancestors, and both seem very important. Matthew and Luke can't agree on who Joseph's dad was. Jesus' adopted grandfather, they have different names in each gospel. One says Jacob, and one says Healy. And this is not exactly something that would have gotten lost in the obscurities of history. We're talking one generation removed They also can't seem to agree on which son of David, Israel's great king, did Jesus descend from? Did he descend from Solomon's royal line, David's official successor? Or did he descend from Solomon's nobody younger brother, Nate? You think that If he comes from Solomon, from the great high king, it it burnishes Jesus' credentials. The other one seems to challenge or, or, or makes Jesus seem not as significant, not as important. So what do we do with all this? First, I want you to push past your knee jerk reaction to say, I don't care. You can get it out of the way if you want. I don't care. Okay. Now push past that, because it says in Scripture that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful and profitable. There is something here for us to use. There is something here that is beneficial for us to discover. So push through the pain. Second, know that families are messy and complicated, 
So my name is Ryan White, but I was not born with that surname. My original surname was Hanson. I was Ryan Hanson. White is my stepfather's last name. And while he never formally adopted me, I adopted his last name. Right before I got married, I legally took his name because I wanted to build upon that legacy. The legacy of the godly man who raised me. So, is it hopeless? Can we not get a clear answer of what's going on here? Can we not even get a concrete answer of who Jesus' grandpa was? Well, as I've prayed through this, as I've wrestled through this, as we've gotten into the muck and the mess this week, we did this at men's Bible study. It was fun. I'm convinced that Matthew got it right. Jesus' paternal grandfather, Joseph's dad, was a man named Jacob. But Luke knows that Joseph is not biologically related to Jesus. And he knows Mary, Jesus' mother. She's one of the primary eyewitness testimonies, one of his primary sources for this early part of his gospel. And scholars believe that what he's actually doing is he's recounting Jesus' actual lineage through Mary. That Mary's father was a man named Heli, or Heli, and it goes all the way down through that. Well, why is that significant? Well, I think it's going to tell us something important. First off, there's another elegant piece to this that scholars believe that maybe Mary's father didn't have any sons, that he had no true-born heirs, and thus that he may have adopted his son-in-law Joseph as his true-born son and heir. This might have also been a way that dad was trying to get Joseph to not bolt because Mary was unexpectedly pregnant. And I think this might be, if that's true, if there's a, an adoption in there, that might be an explanation of why this is so confusing, so messy. But I also think it points to the other piece of the puzzle. Adoption is what we should be thinking about. We know that Israel's long-awaited Messiah... God's promised faithful partner, the future glorious king, was supposed to come through David. But if you read the writings of the prophets, you'll discover that David's royal successors, Solomon and his sons, they get rebuked, they get disinherited, they get cut off. God says, my son, your Messiah was going to come from your line. He was going to come from you. He was supposed to come from you. But now because of your evil, because of your injustice, your idolatry, your corruption, it's just your evil's too great. I'm cutting you out of the promise. We get this passage in Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, though Konia, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is Solomon's great-great-grandson, were the signet ring on my right hand. Though he were my pride and joy, yet I would tear you off, says the Lord. 
Write this man down as childless, as a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Isaiah says something similar. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop off the boughs with terrifying power. Those who were part of the, the promise get cut out. Great, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. Okay, why does this matter? Well, I think this is a theme in humanity's story. We were cut off of, from paradise. We were cut down in our pride. We were cut out of the promise Right? None of us have clean hands and a pure heart. We're under a curse. We're disinherited. We're left without a future and a hope. And it's the question is, how do we get back? How do we get grafted back in? How do we regain our access to our inheritance, to God's abundant life? And this is the message of this genealogy. God has to make a way. And he does. If you listen to the prophets when they're looking at Solomon's sons and how they get cut out of the promise, the next thing on the lips of the prophets are these. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Solomon and his sons couldn't do it on their own. God had to do it for them. They get lopped off. And God has to start over. It requires a new act of creation. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. So the original plan fails. The human partners fail. We screw up. We get endlessly lost. And God goes back to the stump of Jesse and he finds an obscure son of David, Nathan, Solomon's kid brother. And he says, it's from this humble line that my Messiah will come. It goes from Nathan to up, 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 all the way to Mary's dad, God has made a way. But we still need to be brought back in. How does that happen? Well, Jesus brings us back through an act of grace, through adoption. Joseph is of the royal line, but that royal line has been cut out of the promise. Yet we now see Joseph's family being once again caught up into that great saga of salvation and it happens through adoption. And the image holds however this works. Either it's Mary's father who adopts Joseph, but also remember, Joseph adopts Jesus as his true-born son. Either way, 
The image holds it is adoption that brings us back in. There's a fourth gospel that gets written, the gospel of John. And he skips the genealogy. But he says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What's he saying? Receive Jesus, adopt him as your own. That's what Joseph does. And God will receive you. God will adopt you as his own. And you will know his salvation. The Lord makes a way. The Lord brings us back. It's grace from start to finish. And I love this because we all know what it means to make a royal mess of our lives. Luke is telling us, no matter how much you've screwed up, you could have burned every bridge. You could have been disowned and disinherited, cast out, cut off, cut down. There is still hope for you. God's grace is stronger and God wants nothing more than to bring you home. It says God will make a way. He will step into your convoluted and your tragic story and he will redeem it. He will start his work of creation all over again and he will make you new. Your story might be as convoluted and as tragic and as confusing as this. You are not without hope. Luke says this is our stories individually. It is humanity's story collectively. That's why he goes all the way back to Adam. Adam, it was through him that came failure, sin, and death. We're cut off and without hope. But through Jesus, God's true-born son, we get victory, we get forgiveness, we get newness of life. He's this herald of a new creation. He's the one through whom grace breaks out our long-awaited salvation, our adoption back into the family of God. And that voice cries from heaven. He says, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. But in a few chapters, a voice, that same voice is going to speak from heaven. Not to Jesus in confirmation, but to us. And the voice is going to say, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As we begin this journey through the Gospel of Luke, let's heed that divine call. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one humanity has been groaning for from our earliest days. We need to listen to him and seek his face together. The heart of God is no matter how messy and broken your story, there is hope. No matter how far cut out you feel from God's best for you, 
from your glorious life that you foresaw laying in front of you, he says there is hope. I am a father who loves you and I will bring you back to myself. It's no mistake that one of the most famous scenes in the Gospel of Luke is the parable of the prodigal son where front and center you see this father who says, I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care what you've done. My grace will bring you home. So you might not start every day reading that genealogy, but at least let that message sink into your heart. God will make a way. He has made a way. And we get back into his love through his gracious adoption. Through us welcoming, him welcoming us in as his kids. His adopted, beloved children. And for that we say thank you. And I say thank you that Luke only wrote one genealogy in his gospel. So we're done. Let's pray. Dear God, this would not be the text I'd choose to preach this morning. But you say all scriptures breathed out by you. It's profitable for our teaching, for our instruction, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. And if there's those of us that need the correction to hear that we are not too far gone, that our lives and our pasts are not too messy for your grace to make new. Would you correct us? For those who need to be instructed in how big your love is, would you drive that point home? And God, would you make this real to us? Luke gives us tons of names and dates and places because he wants us to know that this is not a fairy tale. This is real. God, you really are making all things new. You are really restoring a broken, sin-sick world. We have hope in our brokenness. We even have hope in the face of death. Lord, we love you. We receive it. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.